We're going to continue in our series on 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5, and today we have just a single verse as our basic passage. And that verse is the title of the message. Brethren, pray for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 25. And the key word for those who would like to make tally marks. Oh, oh sorry. I think I had that there flipped over. Okay. It just turned off over time. It'll come back. <clears throat> and so the, the key verse... The key word is the word pray. And so if you'd like to make a tally mark each time you hear that word, that's going to give you quite a bit of tally marks today because the message is on the subject of prayer. And we're going to use this passage, this, this phrase, as a springboard into a study of the doctrine of prayer. And uh, my hope, there we go, my hope is that by the end of this message, I, I actually have probably three or four sermons worth of material uh, from this week's study, because this is obviously a huge topic in the Word of God. But my basic thesis for this sermon is as follows. When we believe, as we should, in the truth revealed by God to us in the Bible... Prayer becomes an expression of the obedience of faith. That like the other issues that we studied, rejoicing uh, always, praying without ceasing, uh, all of these things are fulfilled in the simple reality of walking in the obedience of faith. As we see in Romans chapter 1, and verses 5 and 6, where Paul writes, Through whom, through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. In other words, we've been commissioned to deliver this message to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. The only obedience that pleases God is the obedience that springs from a heart of faith that believes the truth that God has revealed. And when we believe it as we should, uh, we will rejoice as we should. We will pray as we should. It will not be something burdensome. It will not be something that we have to just tough it out, but rather it will be a natural response to the reality that we believe to be true and therefore, the things that we are intended by God to do will be done as a matter of joy and rejoicing rather than of burden. And so when we believe, as Paul did, that prayer is the primary means by which we get to participate in what God is doing in the world around us, we will naturally pray fervently and we will pray very specifically about what we see. So I'm going to make the case that when we truly believe as we should, we will naturally pray as we should. So let's pray as we begin this message. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a good and wise and loving Savior. We thank you that you have established and defined reality as you have. We thank you, Lord, that even though there is this battle going on between the Lord God and Satan, between those who love God and follow him and those who have rebelled against him, Lord, that we would see where we fit into this battle and how we participate. And Lord, we would come away with a sense of excitement and enthusiasm and joy and eagerness to play our part. And we do these things, Lord, by faith in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Now, the Lord's Prayer is often a beginning 
point for teaching on the subject of prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is intended to be something of a template. Now, you know, I, ha- I have a, uh, I'm looking right now at a, a Macintosh laptop. And I have on this laptop a, a program, uh, actually a family of programs called iWork. You know, it's all the business apps for my, for my computer. And one of those apps is called Pages. And those Pages apps have what are called templates. And they're really just uh, a layout. A, a, a page has been laid out ahead of time for you, very nicely done by professional graphic artists. And it has some photographs there that you can just replace with the, the photographs you would prefer to use. It has headlines that you can replace with the headline that you prefer to use. And there is a place for text and copy and for dates and times and places. And all of that is just laid out for you, but it's all just a template. And it's intended to guide you as you put your particular information in to that template, and then you end up with a beautiful poster or, or newsletter, and, and people think you're a wonderful graphic artist when, in fact, you just followed the template. Well, in a similar way, the Lord's Prayer is a template for us as we come to the Lord. We read it in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 9 through 13, but it's found elsewhere in the other Gospels as well. But Jesus says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, or in in other gospels, our transgressions, as we forgive our debtors, or those who have transgressed against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, in this template, Jesus teaches his disciples and teaches us how to pray with this prayer. And it serves to guide us as we approach God with a proper reverence, seeking only his will to be done, asking for his provision on a daily basis, asking for his forgiveness as we also forgive others, and asking for his deliverance from temptation and from Satan himself. Now, in any time, in any place in history, this prayer can serve as a guide for your approach to God. You can approach God knowing that these pieces are all appropriate and can be uh, adapted to the circumstance that you are facing. And so we have in this, in this Lord's Prayer an excellent uh, foundation for our prayer life. But I'd like to go back and review for a moment the message from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16 where Paul commanded us to pray without ceasing. Now we saw at that time that the Greek word uh, here is the means, it means to pray continually without, without stopping. We saw also that if God is always there, as Francis Schaeffer has pointed out, he is the God who is there to commune with about everything at all times, that we can talk with him about everything as it happens continuously, because he is listening continuously. We also saw that if our heart and our mind are never silent, and our mind is constantly making observations, expressing desires, feeling concern for others, and trying to solve problems, then the question is, who are we talking to? I mean, your mind is doing all of that regardless. And so if we understand that, then we can either be talking to ourselves or we can be talking to God. Every observation can be a a prayer, a praise, a request. 
And it's not impossible for us to pray without ceasing if we understand that mental reality. You are always thinking, why not think your thoughts toward God rather than just to yourself? And so that principle of praying without ceasing is one part of the doctrine of prayer, but it's not all there is. You see, this kind of constant prayer is not necessarily fervent prayer. And that's what we're going to look at mostly today. Fervent prayer. James chapter 5 and verse 16, James writes, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So there's some qualifications here that James mentions. First of all, we're confessing our sins to one another, and we are being forgiven by God and by one another, and so we're removing an obstacle right there to our prayers being answered. But then James makes the observation, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So fervency has to do with a kind of a fighting stance. It's, it's, an, it's energized. It's focused. It's energized. It has a, an agenda. And that kind of fervent prayer by a righteous man. Now, I'm sure that James would not be offended if we included women in that. A righteous woman. But you might trip over that word righteous. You say, but I, I'm not righteous. I'm I mess up all the time. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm sinful. Well, James is not referring to, here to your righteousness, but rather to the righteousness that has been imputed to you by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There should be times of fervent prayer, and our being righteous is a matter of Christ's righteousness. As we read in Philippians Chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul writes, not having my own righteousness. So don't, don't be concerned about that, but rather be concerned that you are standing in the righteousness of Christ, what he's done for you at that cross. You have repented of your sins. He has forgiven you for those sins, and he now responds to you as though you were as righteous as Christ himself. So don't allow Satan to say, well, you can't have any of your prayers answered because you're not righteous enough. Well, it's not my righteousness that God is looking at. It's the righteousness of Christ in me that God's looking toward. And so in addition to praying without ceasing, we should also have scheduled times of focused fervent prayer. Now in the old days, when I was a child, most every church, at least all the Baptist churches, seemed to have a midweek prayer meeting, right? And it was a distinct meeting. It was not, it was not a, a Bible study. It was a prayer meeting. You'd have Sunday mornings, you have Sunday nights, you have Wednesday nights, and uh, I went to all of them as a child, okay? My mom took us to church and we participated there. Now, that has fallen off in the day in which we live. You don't see many of those kinds of church inclusive in the church building prayer meetings, but we still have prayer groups. We have meetings in homes usually during the week in many of the churches. And so these these can be if we're willing times of focused fervent prayer. But the question is, should we have a scheduled time for this kind of fervent prayer? Should we have what is called in the book of Acts, an hour of prayer? You say, well, where is that found? It's found in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, the beginning of the chapter. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. Specifically, we're told the ninth hour. Now, this was a part of the Jewish culture. The temple was still standing. It had not yet been destroyed by Rome. And so the Jewish community continued to participate 
in scheduled times of prayer. And Peter and John, as Christians, as believers, as apostles of Christ, are still participating in the Jewish culture of the hour of prayer at the ninth hour. Now, John Calvin wrote in reference to uh, this passage, unless we fix certain hours in the day for prayer, it easily slips from our memory. So I think there's something we can gain from that. If we want to make a permanent improvement in our ability to pray, in the obedience of faith, then the best way to do that would be by changing our routines and establishing a scheduled routine time to gather with others to pray. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. And he says, and what you ask will be responded to, will be answered. And so we have a, <clears throat> a key here. There's wisdom. This is not law, but there is wisdom in establishing certain times each day to pray like a lawyer in the battle to proclaim the gospel. Now this phrase, to pray like a lawyer, actually comes from John Calvin. And he, he uses this term to describe, as we're going to see, Abraham in his prayer regarding the city of Sodom. Now, it's almost humorous as we read it, but it is a window into what it looks like to really press in and make your case to God. So let's take a look at it. Abraham prayed like a lawyer, according to John Calvin. In Genesis 18, verse 23, and Abraham came near and he said, now God has already said, I'm going to go down and look at what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And if it's true, what I see, what I hear there, uh, I'm going to destroy these cities. And Abraham comes near and says, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, Abraham's nephew, Lot, is living in Sodom at this time, along with his wife, his sons, the daughters, the wives of his sons. The whole family group is there in Sodom. And so Abraham approaches God and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked? Far be it from you. You shall, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You see what Abraham's doing? He's arguing with God. Like a lawyer arguing a case in a courtroom scene. And so the Lord said... If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. So then Abraham continues. Abraham must have been the kind of a guy that, you know, was a hard bargainer, right? He says, what do you mean 40? What if there's just 30? How about 20? I'll settle for 10, you know. And so we have the, this, this uh, prayer that continues all through the chapter, and he, can, he always begins by saying, now, I, I, I know I'm, I'm pressing you on this, I know I'm unworthy to ask this, but what if there's not quite 30? What if there's only 20? And finally, he says, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. Now, little historical detail to all of this. If you go back to Genesis chapter 19, and you go through and you look at the questions of the angels as they ask Lot the question, who else do you have here? Your sons? and your son's wives, and your daughters, who you just 
Two of them you just offered to the mob, and the others that are married to your to the sons-in-law, and your wife. Did you know that when you add up the the implications of those questions, there's a minimum of ten. Now I believe Abraham knew that. Abraham is pressing on God to bring it down to the number 10. So if Lot has managed his household in such a way that his family is following him in his faith, then that would have saved the whole city of Sodom from destruction. But there were not 10. His father, uh, his, his sons-in-law thought he was joke, joking. His, his, uh, even his wife looked back as they were leaving Only the two daughters managed to get out of Sodom, and they couldn't get Sodom out of the daughters. They end up sinning with their father in a cave outside the smoldering ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's It's a terrible, terrible situation. And yet, out of that story comes Moab, the daughter, one of the daughters bears a baby named Moab. Moab goes on to be the father of a new tribe, the Moabites. The Moabites are enemies of Israel for hundreds of years. And yet out of that tribe that never should have existed from our perspective, walks a young lady named Ruth, the Moabite. And she's a great-great-grandmother of David, who is the king upon whose throne Christ will seat himself and rule forever and ever. So we serve a really big God, folks. I mean, we, this is a God who's, who can take the ruins of our lives and not just patch it up and put it back together, but make it better than it was to get, than it, better than it ever would have been. He somehow was able to take the, the broken pieces of our lives and reassemble them into something better than what we had before we messed up. Isn't that amazing? So praying like a lawyer, as as Calvin puts it, is advocating before God what you believe would be most glorifying to God. And that's what we see Abraham doing here. He's saying, God, you'd really be glorified if you were to show mercy. Now, Moses also prayed like a lawyer. Now, listen to this prayer. In in Exodus chapter 32, in verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. So God is saying to Moses, I'm just going to get rid of them. I'm going to take you, and you're going to be the beginning of a new, a new nation. And listen to Moses' response. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord and said, Lord his God, and said, Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore... I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Moses is saying, hey God, wait a minute. Remember what you said? So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now I know that this kind of plays with our systematic theology here and says, well, wait a minute now, God is not changing his mind You know, God is immutable. He doesn't change. Well, God is enjoying his children coming to him and trying to think like dad. You know, they're trying to to look at the situation and say, God, you would be most glorified, as far as I can tell, if you did this. And God loves that kind of prayer because we're trying to enter into his perspective to ascertain his will. How can he accomplish his 
greatest purposes in this world. And he wants us to think about that. And he wants us to enter into it and to be a part of his team in trying to understand what would give God the greatest amount of glory. And then ask God to do that. So God is not offended. This is not insubordination. This is a child of God beginning to grow up and be like his father. So Moses made his case that God would be most glorified by showing mercy rather than by revealing his wrath. In a similar way, Paul believed in the importance of praying like a lawyer. We see in Romans chapter 15 and verse 30 through 32, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So what do you want, Paul? What do you want us to pray for? That I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now, do you notice how specific Paul is in what he requests? He focuses his prayer requests on his ministry and the benefit to others. And it's not primarily focused upon his own personal comfort, although he looks forward to being refreshed when he finally returns. To pray like a lawyer is to ascertain what is the will of God, what would be most pleasing to him, how would he be most glorified, and then to pray that. And to pray it with the confidence that God is going to do the best. He's going to choose the most wise and good and righteous path forward. And so prayer is a key, as, as Terry shared uh, today, is a key weapon in this fight for what matters most. And what matters most is the glory of God and the good of all those who love God. And so we see in Ephesians 6, verse 12, or verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Now, this praying in the Spirit can be a, uh, a charismatic kind of thing, but it can also just be getting into the mind and the attitude of the Spirit of God. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so prayer is not, as John Piper has said, a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. It is a wartime walkie-talkie to call down firepower from on high. So think of prayer as you're down here on the ground, you know, you're in the bushes here, and you've got this walkie-talkie, and you've got your laser pin, right? That's what they do now. They have a laser pin and they point that laser pin at the target, and that laser pin can be seen by the instruments in the planes flying overhead. And so all we're doing down here on the ground, we're not destroying the target. We're just pointing our laser pin at the target, and the power from on high comes down and, and takes out that target. And so what we're doing in our prayer lives is participating in the battle, not by being the one who actually pulls the trigger, but rather the one who is pointing to specific needs at specific times from our perspective. But Paul mentions this. He says, but while you're at it, you know, while we're talking about prayer, pray for me too. He says, and for me. This is in the same passage, Ephesians 6, 19. And for me, pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that, I'm, that it may 
that in it I may speak boldly. There we are a second time. Boldly as I ought to speak. What do you think of when you think of the word bold? You know, a lot of people think of somebody who's just real brash, you know. Somebody who's even rude. You know, boy, he's bold. That's not what the Bible means by boldness. Boldness is actually confidence and clarity in communication. You are being bold when you are being clear. And you can whisper the truth boldly. I mean, go up and whisper to somebody, homosexuality is a sin. It doesn't matter how, long, how loud you say it. There are riots and revivals in every direction. When you say the truth confidently and clearly so that no one can misunderstand. When you whisper quietly, Jesus is the only way to be saved. The only way to go to heaven is by trust in Jesus. You don't have to say that loud or in an angry tone or in a, in a brash way. You just say it clearly and people hear what you said and they understand what you mean and you'll have riots and revivals all around you. But let me, let me just add this one point. When you become so cautious as to avoid the riot, you just canceled the revival. Let me say that again. When you become so cautious as to avoid the riot, you have just canceled the revival. You must say it clearly enough, confidently enough, that it's understood and those who believe it will be saved and there will be revival. And those who disbelieve it and are angry, they will riot. And this is what you see happening in the life of the Apostle Paul constantly in every town. Riots and revivals. If he toned it down and dialed it back, he could have avoided the riot. But you can't have it both ways. You can't avoid the riot and have a revival. Think about that. I know so many times we don't want to offend. But in our attempts to not offend, we will not save. We will not deliver the mail to those who need to hear it and understand it and believe it. So, though Paul is in prison at this time, you'll notice that he doesn't ask for prayer that he would be released from prison. Do you ever wonder why? Well, I think it's very consistent. So let's look at another passage. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I also am in chains, that I may make it manifest or clear as I ought to speak. There's boldness, clarity, confidence, and communication, riots and revivals. You get arrested, but you also save some of the members of Caesar's household. You see, the answer to the question of why is Paul not asking to be released from prison is because he was reaching people in prison that he could never have reached in any other way. When Paul was arrested in Philippi, and he's writing this particular passage to the Philippians, he ends up being beaten and thrown in jail. And he and Silas are singing to God in the middle of the night, and there's a great earthquake, and the doors of all of the prison's uh, cells are, are opened, and the jailer comes rushing in, and he thinks, oh no, the prisoners have escaped, I might as well just kill myself rather than wait and have the, uh, uh, the officials kill me. And Paul and Silas shout, no, no, don't hurt yourself, we're still here. And the jailer comes running over and he drops to his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? How do you get to witness to jailers? You get arrested. 
How do you get to witness to emergency medical personnel? You get hit by a car <laughs> or something. You fall out of a tree, right? You somehow end up in an ambulance. So whenever you find yourself in a really difficult situation, maybe you did, would never have asked to be in that situation, look for the jailer. Look for the emergency medical technician. Look for that nurse. Look for that doctor. Look for that fellow patient. Because wherever God manages to place you by his sovereign grace, there's something for you to do there, something for you to say there. And if you're so cautious and tentative as to avoid offending anybody, you just canceled the what must I do to be saved scenario. This is the way we need to think. This is the way Paul thought. Paul saw prayer as a part of the battle plan. And he was a part of the process of pointing out what needs to be done by the power of God through his Holy Spirit. He's got his laser pen out and he's pointing it over here at the, at the jailer and he's pointing it over here at Caesar and he's pointing it over here to the Jews and he's pointing it over, And he never says, and get me out of here. Because he knows he's right where he needs to be in order to see all these things that he needs to point to in prayer, very specifically. Fervent in prayer. What circumstances are you in? Maybe uncomfortable circumstances. Maybe you're suffering right now. And the question is, what perspective does that suffering give you that would guide your prayer? That would give direction to the power of God in your situation? So biblical prayer is more, has more to do with God's will than it does to do with our own will. We see this in John chapter 14 and verse 12. Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatsoever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Again, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask... We, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. <clears throat> now many have taken these passages and tried to turn it into the idea that, that God will do whatever you ask. If you just have enough faith, he'll, he'll just do whatever you ask. But, but that's a little bit like, you know, you've got a lot of really creepy stories in, in literature about people who get to make a wish and somehow the wish never, you know, the fulfillment of the wish never works out the way you had intended. Like, if you ask uh, artificial reality, make me the richest person in the world, and the artificial reality says, okay, and then he kills everybody but you. <laughs> that, that's not what I meant. Well, too late. You see, God is not a God who gives us whatever we ask for. He's a heavenly father, and any father who loves his children does not give them whatever they ask for. But he does give them whatever they ask for in ways that line up with his purposes and his plans and his will, according to his will, in his name. It's not just an issue of some kind of authority, but rather a relationship. I'm asking this I'm in you. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. I'm asking for these things, not for myself, but for your glory. And so praying in Jesus' name and praying according to his will has to do with ascertaining his will and then asking him to do that. And we're back to praying like a lawyer. Figuring out how to make your case before God as to how 
he would be most glorified. Even Jesus prayed in this way. In Luke 22 and verse 40, and when he came to the place, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Because Jesus knows what's coming. And he wants them to pray that they would be able to go through this night without uh, entering into temptation and even sin. And he was withdrawn from them and about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. This, this death, this death on the cross, this beating, this torture. Lord, if it be your will, take this away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Rather than delivering him from this night of sacrifice, God instead gives him the spiritual strength to go through it. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. This is depression. This is discouragement. There's, there's, you know, one of the, one of the uh, symptoms of, of depression is, is just constant sleep. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. This is a very dark moment in Christ's life. Jesus prayed for the Father's will to be done rather than his own will as a man who did not want to suffer and die. If if Jesus had been eager to do this, if he had wanted to suffer and die, that would be a mental illness. Jesus was not suicidal. As a man, he righteously wanted to avoid this situation. But as a, as a courageous, heroic man, he says, not my will, but your will be done. So why doesn't God always answer our prayers the way we want him to? This is important because sometimes our children are growing up around us and they're watching us and they're seeing us pray for things and Sometimes God answers the prayer wonderfully, and we need to celebrate that. But sometimes God does not answer the prayer the way we would like, and our children walk away saying, well, either God doesn't care or he's not even there. When I went through the the loss of my wife, Sono, my children, my youngest children, were casualties of that. I did my best to pastor them through that, but I know that uh, deep down, It shook what little faith they had. And I continue to pray for them that God will bring them back to him or bring them to him for the first time, if that's the need. But the point is that people can be shaken by circumstances, and we need to be careful that we don't create this this, uh, illusion that somehow, if God were really there, we would always get what we ask for. Because we don't. James chapter 4 verse 2 gives us a very blunt answer to this question. Kind of an extreme version. He says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. That makes it sound like, hey, stop the violence and just ask God for what you want. But then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. You ask wrongly that you may spend it on your pleasures. So we have a lack of faith on the one hand and then we have wrong motives on the other hand. And both can undermine God's answer in in the affirmative because he loves us too much to reward us for asking amiss or for asking in ways that would, would uh, consume it upon our own pleasures. Faith is not a handful of quarters, and God is not a heavenly vending machine to give us whatever we ask for. 
Make that clear to your children in conversations. God is not a vending machine. We don't go to him and just put in enough faith quarters and get whatever we want. God is our heavenly father. And just like a heavenly fa- a, a father on earth, we give our children what we know is best for them. We listen to their requests. We consider their requests. And when we can, we fulfill their requests, but only in ways that will do them good and not harm. And that's the way God deals with us. God is our good and wise Heavenly Father who always does what is best for us and what is best for His own glory. And it's in our interest that God continue to be zealous for His own glory. And that means sometimes He has to say no. Now, in, the, in reality... Our patient suffering of injustice and of suffering of all sorts has the potential, not always, but has the potential to adorn the gospel. Now, this phrase, adorning the gospel, comes from Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. It's speaking specifically to slaves. Now, it says bond servants here, and that is uh, not a wrong translation, but it doesn't carry the same impact as the word slave. Okay. These were people who were slaves, often in wealthier homes. And those slaves were not always treated well. They were maybe not often treated well. There was injustice. There was a sense of, I'm not getting what I deserve. And that, and that bred in them a, a hard attitude of saying, well, if I can... I can take whatever I can get away with and it's okay because they're not being just toward me so I can steal from the master. I can pilfer. I can say one thing to the master's face and then say another thing behind the scenes to my fellow slaves. And so Titus, in the, in the letter to Titus, Paul exhorts those who are slaves. These are Christian slaves. He says, exhort the bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, that's stealing, but showing all good fidelity, that, that they may adorn the doctrine of God. That's the gospel. By behaving in this way, even in the face of injustice, even when you're suffering an outrageous discrimination, to respond with these kinds of good attitudes will adorn the gospel. Not add to the gospel, but will place the doctrine of God in such a light as to make it easier for the Holy Spirit to convict your master. In some ways, God is saying to the slave, if you'll just step aside and give me a clear shot at your master, things will go a lot better. But if you stand here in the middle of him and me arguing and and complaining about all this, you're actually interfering. So it's the same thing to wives. Wives, you know, respect your husband. Now step aside, aside, honey. Give me a clear shot at that guy. I want to deal with him now. And you will do yourself a great service by getting out of my way. (laughs) And that is very much the way it works. So God speaks to the children first. Children, obey your parents. Now step aside, kids. I want to talk to your dad. I want to talk to your mom. For this reason, when we pray according to the will of God, in the Lord's name, it may be wiser to ask for strength to suffer unjustly than to ask to be delivered from our suffering. Now, I know that's a hard word, and when you're suffering, it's so easy for me to say this standing here, and I'm not, you know, I'm not dying, I'm not in the hospital, I'm not broke. But when situations are hard, we need to try to see things from God's point of view. Our circumstances may be adorning the gospel as others are watching us go through our particular trial. And if we can go through that trial in faith, 
cheerfully accepting our circumstances, knowing that God can at any moment take these things away. It has an effect upon the way others see the credibility of the gospel. God had to say no to Paul on several occasions. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that I may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. I want to focus in on that phrase, that I may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Paul's request for deliverance was rejected. And it was rejected for good reason. Because you see, Paul's suffering at the hands of unreasonable men ultimately was God's way of adorning the gospel that he was preaching by strengthening its credibility in the eyes of others who were watching Paul. Now you say, well, that's a stretch. How can you say that? Well, this is what Jesus said Paul would do from the very beginning. Take a look. Acts chapter 9, verse 13. And when Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, speaking of Saul of Tarsus, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And what is Jesus' response to Ananias when he asked this? He says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So when Paul says, Lord, deliver me from these unreasonable sinful, wicked people. God says, no, Paul, you don't understand. That's part of the strength of your ministry. Because you are establishing a credibility for the gospel that is going to go on for thousands of years. As people read the stories of how this man went all over the Mediterranean area preaching the gospel, being beaten, being stoned, being arrested, and ultimately laying down his life and dying for the cause of Christ. Lord, get me out of this. No, not yet. Not yet. Paul was called from the beginning to suffer as a witness before the courts of both Rome and Israel. And that is what he did. And as hard as it was for him, He came through it. Paul was, in his own words, filling up what was lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. Now that almost sounds blasphemous when you say it all by itself without a context, doesn't it? Well, I'm going to add to the the sufferings of Christ. No. Well, let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me. That's referring to that conversation with Ananias. That's the stewardship. To fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Our willingness to suffer in taking the gospel to others actually adorns the gospel. And it fills up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. In this sense, that our suffering demonstrates the value of the gospel. The value of the message. That it is worth suffering for. One of the men that I most respect in the ministry is John Piper. And when we took a group of our men from Household of Faith Community Church to the pastor's conference in Minneapolis, we suffered for Christ. It was February in Minnesota. But we we went and, and we were there, and it was a blessing. But John Piper told this story, and it's in one of his books, 
uh, as well. But it's a story of a missionary in Africa who heard about a tribe that was way out in the middle of the desert and that no one had reached this tribe with the gospel. And he was determined that he was going to get there and he was going to share Christ with that tribe. And as he walked through the burning sands of that desert, eventually the heat went right through his shoes and began to burn his feet. And they began to swell with blisters. And those blisters began to break. And his feet were red and swollen and painful. And the man came into village. And and as he came into the village, the people shunned him and just pushed him away and said, get out of our village, get out of our village. And he stumbled off and he fell down under a tree. And he, he pulled off his shoes and he looked at his bloody feet and he just passed out there and went to to sleep, laying there under that tree. He doesn't know how much longer it was, but later he woke up and he realized that all the men of the village were standing around him. And he thought, this is it. They're going to kill me. Lord, receive me. But then he noticed that the men of the tribe were weeping. They were weeping. And one of the men said, when we saw your feet, we knew your message must be important. You see, sometimes we suffer. We say, God, why does it have to be so hard? Why does the sun have to be so hot? Why does the sand have to be so hot? Why does the village have to be so far away? It adorns the gospel. It says it's worth it. It's worth it to suffer in this way to get this message to those who have never heard. And that's why Paul would receive an answer of no. Even though he's a man of great faith, God would say no to some of his requests. Perhaps the most famous is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Paul writes, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations that I've received, a thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, no. No, I'm not going to take this away. My grace is sufficient Your strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul prays for relief from this suffering three times. But the reason for this suffering, as he has said already, was to keep him humble in spite of his many revelations. If you had received as many revelations of the truth about God as Paul had, it would be pretty hard to keep you from getting a big head. And God gives Paul a a something that brings him to a place of utter dependence on God and an inability for his pride to swell up and undermine his ministry. And so, if he was relieved of this suffering, it would only thwart God's reason for giving it to him in the first place. And so God said no. There's something more important than your momentary comfort. And that is an eternal weight of glory. The sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And so Paul then turns and rejoices in the fact that this thorn is really working well. (laughs) He says so in the next passage. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Our good and wise and loving Heavenly Father does not do anything without having a good and wise and loving reason for it. We need to remember that. And when we remember that, we can walk through anything. And therefore, our prayer should not be, Lord, get me out of this. But rather, Lord, fulfill your purpose in this. And if you can do it quickly, that would be great. (laughs) But if not, then complete what you started. Because I would rather your will be fulfilled than my pain be taken away. And so in closing, I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul prays for us. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever Amen. I want you to notice that God is answering Paul's prayer to this very day. He's answering it in your life. And sometimes in order for these things that he has prayed for to be accomplished, we have to go through some hard things. And that should not undermine our faith in God and his love for us our faith in God's ability to answer prayers for us, but rather to allow us to see how through these experiences of difficulty, we are being made like Christ. And our ability to say, not my will be, but thy will be done. And so here I'd like to sum up with what I would call the bottom line. When we believe as we should, We will pray as we should. We will pray fervently like a lawyer, making his case in court, striving first to ascertain the will of God, and then asking God to just do that. That is mighty and powerful prayer. And Though we may ask for relief from our own suffering and the suffering of others, we should be open to the possibility that our suffering is part of the way in which God has chosen to adorn the gospel and to fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ in our life before a watching world. You see, Jesus died in order that there might be a gospel. Now, we live in order to take that gospel to the world. And we often suffer in order for the credibility of that gospel to be made clear to those who are hearing it for the first time. Our prayers for ourselves and for one another should make the phrase, Lord, if it be your will, express not a lack of faith, which it often does, We're basically saying, well, whatever, you'll do whatever you want. But rather to say, no, 
there's a deeper and more confident, more mature faith that in our suffering, God is accomplishing his will in us and in the lives of those around us. Remember that many times it's not about you. It's about those who are watching you. Say, Lord, this is so hard. Why do I have to go through this? And in some way, you don't have to go through this. You're already secure in your relationship with God. But there are people around you who are watching, and by the way you go through your difficult time, Jesus becomes more real to them. And their desire to know him and trust him rises as you adorn the gospel. So pray without ceasing, constantly, talking to God in your mind. But set aside times of fervent, focused, pray-like-a-lawyer kinds of praying. And understand that when God does not answer your prayer the way you would like him to, it is because he has higher and better reasons for saying no. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you glory. We give you praise. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness and for those moments in our lives where we're not in pain, we're not suffering, we're not struggling. But Lord, help us to see these times of refreshment as preparatory for going through whatever it takes for our loved ones to come to know you, for our neighbors to be saved, for our communities, Lord, to be revived. Help us, Lord, to not be afraid of a future that may involve pain when we know that that pain is worth it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And Lord, as best we can, according to your will. Thank you.